With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I take a deep dive into the first Department of Financial Services, that's State of New York, enforcement action around cybersecurity involving First American Title Company. In this deep dive, I am joined by John Arnold, Chief Innovation Officer at K2 Intelligence Finn, and Sergeet Mahant, Managing Director at K2 Intelligence Finn Financial Crimes and Risk Compliance Practice. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I'm extraordinarily pleased because I have with me Jordan Arnold and Sergeet Mahant, and we're going to take a deep dive into an area that does not get enough play in the broader compliance community, and that is the New York Department of Financial Services in their first cyber enforcement action. Uh, gentlemen, uh, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. I was wondering if we might start out by setting the table of uh, what is the New York State Department of Financial Services? What is its role in uh, both as a regulator and at providing information to companies, banks, financial institutions, insurance companies, commercial organizations that it may regulate? And how does it really sit in the worldwide regulatory scheme? Sure, Tom. Well, this is Jordan. I'll, I'll uh... I'll, I'll give a first, uh, first attempt at an answer there, and I'll, I'll begin with just a little bit of history. So New York State historically had uh, departments of banking and insurance, and in 2011, uh, those two departments were effectively merged into a new entity, the Department of Financial Services, uh, which today uh, supervises and regulates the activities of, of well over a 1,000 you know, banking and, and other types of financial institutions, um, and then, of course, they also have oversight over, uh, you know, hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of uh, insurance-related entities from, uh, you know, carriers uh, to, uh, to managed care organizations, individual insurance licensees, and others. And so they have sort of broad regulatory oversight. And, you know, by their own word, uh, their mission um, is to reform the regulation, um, you know, obviously in New York State, um, to keep pace with how things are changing um, and to try and be uh, sort of a, a, an actor in, in, in the prevention effort of, uh, of financial crises. Um, and, and then just generally speaking, um, they, of course, uh, seek to prevent uh, consumers and, and the broader market from, from falling victim to frauds and other forms of um, exposure um, that can, of course, create long-term consequences both for individuals, for markets, and beyond. I was wondering if you might give a few words around the work that they've done to put out information about how they view best practices and compliance, particularly around uh, their cybersecurity 
Yeah, well, they've, they've certainly been, been very proactive in, in trying to both point to uh, the risks that, that organizations need to be mindful of and, and, and monitor for, um, and, uh, and they certainly have uh, recruited uh, some, some very you know, experienced, skilled uh, you know, leadership, uh, folks who have depths of experience in the relevant areas so that they can not just essentially come in when something goes wrong, um, to to bring obviously a degree of uh, of enforcement, but to really you know try and work with the industry to help um, stakeholders identify ways to avoid problems in the first place. The idea being that that of course both protects those organizations and also the consumers and other individuals who rely upon them. Um, and so it's really not just sort of an organization that exists to kind of uh, you know come in and regulate, if you will. Um, you know, and, and enforce when there's problems, but really to say, look, these are the things that you should be doing to prevent problems in the first place um, so that you don't have to deal with the downside of an enforcement action, for example. So one of the reasons I was so uh, thrilled to be able to visit with the both of you all about this case is for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, the DFS, although obviously a state regulatory body, really plays on the international stage. And they've been a part of some major international enforcement actions around financial institutions. Um, this case involves an insurance company, which is uh, financial institutions, financial services companies, and insurance companies are all within the DFS remit for regulation. But I think we can take some broader lessons for a wide variety of both private corporations and um, other types of compliance. So with that, I was wondering if maybe you could uh, give us an overview of the First American Title Company and uh, how we got to where we actually had an enforcement action around this in the United States. Sure. Well, so so DFS, you know, has been at the forefront of identifying um, the, the risks associated with, obviously, cybersecurity. Um, and they, um, you know... That led to the uh, the enactment of what's you know commonly referred to as Rule 500, um, which imposed very significant and, and, and thoughtful uh, obligations on uh, you know the entities that it regulates um, to make sure that those entities are meeting or, or even exceeding um, best practices. And um, the, the first American uh, matter marks the first enforcement action under Rule 500. Um, and, and so it's, of course, noteworthy uh, in that way. Um, and, and, and certainly DFS took its time in, in obviously, uh, you know, in putting out its first enforcement action. Of course, the hearing is not scheduled to occur until October. But, you know, the bottom line is, uh, is that as has been reported uh, publicly, um, you know, First American um, is alleged to have exposed, you know, roughly 885 million records relating to mortgage deals going back all the way to 2003. And what's been alleged is that those documents um, were available without authentication effectively to anyone with a web browser. So in other words, you would not have to have been a very sophisticated criminal to access that information and, of course, to try and make use of it. And it, it is alleged to have included um, you know, very you know, sensitive personal information about individuals uh, in this country, essentially the raw material that fraudsters and scammers and others use to perpetrate all manner of frauds and crimes, and that includes things like social security numbers, 
bank account numbers, driver's license numbers, and, and other uh, records. Um, I think what's notable, certainly in this case, and perhaps why it made to the minds of, of, of the folks at DFS uh, uh, an appropriate candidate for their first action, um, is that it, it appears that the, the flaw that led to this compromise um, was introduced through a, a software update um, in 2014. And it actually uh, is alleged to have gone undetected until uh, First American had what's known as a penetration test done um, to look for you know, vulnerabilities. Um, and, and that was done at the end of 2018. And it seems that although the pen test, as it's known, identifies this vulnerability, um, you know, First American uh, did not take to the mind of DFS the appropriate action to fully uh, remediate that vulnerability um, such that, um, you know, large swaths of data remained available um, after the pen test. And so, um, you know, they, they have brought this action um, saying that, look, you know, if you're an organization like a First American and, um, you know, and so two things really. One, you have to maintain vigilance and understand where your vulnerabilities are, of course, within reason. Uh, but it sounds like this was very readily discovered through, you know, what every organization should be doing, among other things, a penetration test. Um, but it's not just enough, of course, to identify what the vulnerability is. You have to take thoughtful and prompt action to remediate those vulnerabilities when they are found. Um, and it does, you know, good, for example, to uh, classify something as a low-risk vulnerability, as apparently was done here, if in fact it's actively leading to the leakage of very sensitive data about, you know, countless, uh, you know, countless uh, consumers. Um, and so I think, you know, the um, the action at hand is really um, aimed at, at, of course, among other things, drawing attention to the nature of this, the fact that I think I think you could fairly say that to the minds of DFS, um, First American should have remediated this vulnerability, um, you know, much sooner. Um, and and again, it just it just emphasizes the, the critical importance of doing the risk assessments and doing the other, um, you know, taking the other actions, the other steps to maintain sort of robust awareness of what your true cybersecurity posture is um, so that you can identify the things that perhaps are readily discoverable by third parties. And of course, you never want to have that knock at the door. You want to find it out yourself so that you can take action to correct it, uh, understand what your, your exposure is, what your obligations are, if any, um, and move on you know, stronger than you were before. If I could pick up on a few of the points that uh, you raised, Jordan, uh, Really, it, it seemed to me you, you walked us through a best practices compliance program in the context of the remediation that should have been done. And it all started with a risk assessment and an updated risk assessment. And what I had not fully appreciated is a simple software update can change your risk profile. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we often read about, um, you know, breaches and, and hacking events and and I think that many people tend to associate those types of activities with super sophisticated attackers. Um, you know, the proverbial, you know, guy in the basement, in the dark basement with the hoodie uh, at the keyboard, um, who's, you know, super skilled, um, 
uh, or the nation state attacker, you know, where you have essentially the resources of a country being brought to bear on a targeted attack. Um, the practical reality is that so many of the compromises that we read about and that lead to extraordinary damage are not a function of super sophisticated compromises um, or, for example, malicious insiders facilitating access. Really, they are oftentimes a function of, for example, the failure to patch, the failure to routinely update software that may have vulnerabilities. Um, and, of course, the providers of those software, um, you know, they put out patches so that known security flaws, for example, can be fixed. Um, and understanding, you know, what an organization's patching cycle looks like and how, you know, regularly and promptly they're implementing those patches um, is, is critical to understanding, again, what your overall cybersecurity posture is. You know, misconfigurations, uh, simply not using technology in the way or in the optimized way that it's intended to be used can also prevent or present, rather, um, you know, manifest opportunity for attackers to take advantage of an organization. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's third-party risk, which is, you know, uh, certainly coming into much sharper focus the more we read about breaches that are a function not of um, a core vulnerability at the, um, the the entity that gets breached, but rather a vulnerability um, at a third party uh, that's able to connect to the network infrastructure of the uh, you know the victim company, if you will, the company that suffers the breach, um, you know, because their third party um, had a vulnerability and, and they did not do the appropriate vigilance. Um, they didn't maintain appropriate vigilance, rather, around how their, their critical third parties were protecting, for example, the data that's being shared with them or the access that's being provided to them. And so they wind up getting compromised because of those third parties. And so, you know, whether it's failure to patch, whether it's misconfigurations, um, you know, whether it's, it's third party risk, or even whether it's, you know, companies that make sizable investments in technology and cybersecurity technology, but don't do it in a strategic way, and instead they do one-offs, um, and they don't sort of put together and maintain a holistic program. Um, you know, these are not sort of set-it-and-forget-it type efforts. You can't just buy the technology, turn it on, and, and leave it. You have to maintain constant vigilance. You have to have the right people within the organization, or at least the right third parties supporting the organization, who know how to optimize the use of that technology. Um, and, and so... You know, these are the things that an organization must do today um, to try and prevent the kinds of things that we're talking about and, and that we read about. The good news is um, they're quite readily doable. Um, obviously, many small and mid-sized businesses cannot afford to have in-house uh, the type of talent um, and, and, and reach and, 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 you know, and breadth, if you will, of coverage. Um, and so for that reason, there are services, managed services available in the market to bring a level of, of expertise and coverage to businesses that can't afford to insource um, in, in these areas. Um, but that's what needs to be done because, you know, not investing in prevention. We say this to clients all the time. I mean, this is nothing new. Risk assessments have been part of um, the business forever. Um, you know, they're not unique to cybersecurity, of course. And the idea is that, you know, you need to understand um, what your risk posture is so that you can try and prevent harm. And, and of course, uh, investing in prevention is always a fraction of the cost of paying for recovery. So I was wondering if we might be able to take a step back to actually take a little bit higher level view with uh, your thoughts on 
what this might mean, sort of broader consequences for the industry and really the significance of this first enforcement action around the insurance industry? Well, I think, you know, I think it's, it's, look, it's, uh, it is, it's an important moment in time. I think that, you know, considering that Rule 500 has been out now for several years, um, it was, of course, only a matter of when, not if, there would be the first enforcement action. And I think that, you know, I think you can fairly say that we have now entered the enforcement era of Rule 500. And so organizations that have been taking a wait-and-see approach to understand, um, you know, what the enforcement environment might look like under Rule 500 now have a very clear and, I think, powerful example of what could be brought to bear. It's worth mentioning, of course, that every single violation um, under this rule um, can carry with it a $1,000 fine. And so in the aggregate, that can be not only a game changer, but effectively um, a business ender, if you will, for you know certain companies that may not simply be able to recover from the obligations associated with being found um, you know, uh, to have not been compliant or to, you know, to have been in violation. Um, so the consequences are very real. I think it's not an overstatement to say that they could pose an existential threat to a business, frankly, of any size, but especially uh, smaller and mid-sized businesses. Um, and, you know, the DFS regulation, again, it's, it's been looked to by others as a model. Um, and so, uh, you know, certainly uh, you could fairly say that it, it's, it's a very thoughtful piece of regulation that obviously, um, you know, has, has gained the respect of, of other regulators as they try to grapple with these issues and put together their own policies uh, and procedures. Um, so, yeah, we've entered, a, I think, a new a new era uh, as relates to, to cybersecurity enforcement in New York State. And could I take that last point and really uh, move the conversation to a little bit broader than simply this enforcement action or this enforcement action and have you guys discuss how cyber has become a part of the broader compliance conversation. I've done a lot of podcasts during the time of coronavirus, and a key theme has been the increased risk around cyber, but also the increased compliance. So I was wondering uh, what your thoughts might be along those lines. Yeah, I, I, I can take that, uh, uh, Tom. This is Sajid. Uh, yeah, so you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, we are in a new normal. And uh, the entire landscape of cyber is evolving alongside with what we are seeing uh, in the ecosystem right now. Uh, you know, the perimeter, as conventionally was thought to be the security aspect of things, has really reduced down to individual laptops and desktops and mobile devices. Right? That's, that's really what it comes down to. And as Jordan was saying earlier on, uh, you know, it's the weakest link. And it could be as simple as a misconfiguration. It could be as simple as uh, a missed patch on a device uh, that can lead to catastrophic uh, issues, uh, you know, from the smallest to the largest organizations. And we see that day in and day out. Right? Um, I mean, if you think about it, uh, cybercrime is supposed to be uh, the most common types of economic crimes that's out there. Um, I was just looking at some numbers and, you know, it's estimated to cost the global economy, an estimate of about $400 billion annually, right? I mean, that's staggering. And again, you know, if you look at the weakest link, it would come down to the smallest of things. And, and that is indicative of what's happening in the environment today 
uh, you know, especially as it relates to the banks and the financial institutions. On one hand, uh, you know, you have uh, the, the, the drive uh, to take advantage of the mobile cloud, uh, social media, and any kind of technological trends that are out there. And at the same time, there is, you know, the, you have to innovate quickly, you have to deliver it faster, um, you know, reduce the IT complexities. All of this while doing, you know, an airtight security and digital privacy uh, delivery, uh, right, uh, that uh, the consumers of today have come to expect. Now, uh, at, as convenient as it may sound, you know, it brings a lot of compliance-related overheads, right, and compliance-related requirements. And I think NYDFS has done an excellent job in reinforcing that, um, you know, and, and making sure that people understand. So not only is it putting out, uh, you know, a regulatory requirement in a sense, but it's also putting out guidance on how you can do it. And to Jordan's point earlier on, you know, he touched on assessments and things of that nature. These are, you know, relatively simple things that that can be done and, uh, you know, to alleviate uh, the issues as far as uh, the cybersecurity is concerned. Uh, but cyber is really an underpinning of the entire technology and the business landscape, and you cannot really divorce uh, one from the other, right? So that, that's really what it comes down to. Jordan, I was particularly intrigued with your opening remarks about how this case arose in the, in the underlying facts of First American, which led to the breach. And I really wanted to use that to ask you or ask either one of you all about what should a company do when they have notice of a breach? How can they mitigate a violation? Uh, That's a key component of of really any compliance program. What did you do after you found out about it? What are some of the tactics and strategies that you all might advise a client to engage in? So one of the, one of the things that we typically advise our clients on is, you know, they need to stay away from band-aid solutions. Yeah. Uh, pointed solutions. Cybersecurity and compliance has to have a strategic and a programmatic approach to it, right? And uh, it has to be embedded in the DNA of the systems, the application design, the IT infrastructure, the networking. It has to be an inherent part of the entire uh, technology uh, ecosystem in in any organization, and that's even more important because it's if you think about it, you know it's it's much more difficult to retrofit compliance and security, uh, you know, rather than have it uh, be a part of the thought process going in, right? So whenever you think about innovation, I think uh, you know just naturally you have to think about security uh, to go along with it, um, you know, as far as the uh, leadership is an important aspect of that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we have been seeing, especially with NYDFS, NYDFS calls for a dedicated security leader, right, uh, a CISO. Now, the CISO, you know, a lot of times in the conversations that we've had with financial uh, institutions, especially the smaller ones and the financial services industry, is uh, the cost-prohibitive aspect of uh, the security leadership, you know, hiring a dedicated CISO, for example. There are options out there. I mean, you know, the virtual CISO is a new offering that's out there in the industry that reduces your cost of hiring a senior leadership uh, position by 30 to 40% off the bat. And I think that that's an extremely, uh, 
you know viable option that people are uh, you know exposed to and should in my opinion consider um, you know you talk about policies you know your policies typically is the bar for your compliance within the organization now any sort of regulatory compliance or framework that you talk about whether it's nydfs nist iso what have you all of these framework come down to how the policies internal policies have been written and you know how they are being enforced and how the efficiency of those policies in terms of their effectiveness of the controls is being tested so having those robust policies uh, you know written out having them converted into the guidelines and standards uh, is is extremely important it's a very niche area that people need to pay attention to uh, you know a lot of times boilerplate policies uh, are the ones that lead into future issues because it's really difficult to retrofit your technological controls into a policy you need to have a policy uh, that encompasses uh, the larger picture of the uh, security requirements right and assessments i think the risk assessment is is such a fundamental thing for the cybersecurity space and it's it's really no rocket science to be honest with you it's rinse and repeat uh, you know you have to have a risk assessment done annually as per the best practices uh, and you know the self assessments uh, are are things that sometimes kind of give you a false sense of security right so having a third party expert come in look at those assessments you know and give you a reality check is is extremely important um so that that adds value uh, to not only you know kind of patting yourself on the back but also being able to get uh, what the industry best practices are, you know what the peer reviews are what the uh, threat landscape and the threat vectors are that are evolving in the industry and and just bringing that all to bear uh, and implementing those controls uh, within your environment right simple things like vulnerability management penetration testing um that you know that was the issue that led to the discovery of the current situation that we were started to talk about i mean these are you know really simple and mandatory uh, things that need to be addressed uh, from the security domains perspective and uh, at the end of the day security is everybody's job you cannot you cannot you know overplay the aspect of security awareness training especially phishing right phishing is probably one of the biggest threat vectors that we have seen out there uh, that is so easy to exploit um and what it comes down to is ensuring that every single individual in the organization big or small is aware of what it means and how it exposes not just themselves but the entire organization and these are learnings that they can take back home you know and they can apply to their um, their home network especially in uh, the times that we are going through with the pandemic you know a remote working virtual environment is the new normal um your you have brought the office to your home and therefore you are going to take your risk back to the office if you keep yourself exposed so uh, these are simple things i feel uh you know i mean i don't want to underplay them by calling them simple but i feel these are pretty straightforward issues uh you know that can uh, probably avoid a breach uh, but also kind of a stitch in time if you will Uh I might say it's a simple program but it may not be easy. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it takes structure like anything else, right? It takes structure, it takes discipline, it it takes rigor uh, to be able to put all of this in place, uh, you know, uh, and I might be coming at it from a bias of having to do this day in and day out. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have to say that. Uh, but essentially, a, a strategic programmatic approach uh, to cybersecurity is inherently going to improve your compliance posture. That's for sure. I've had the chance to visit with several of your colleagues in other types of compliance, uh, financial crimes compliance, export control compliance, and a corruption compliance. And I always try to ask, what do you guys see from the regulators both now and in the time of, and now in the middle of the coronavirus crisis, but also in the future around regulations and enforcement in the cyberspace that you both play in? So I'll take a stab at it and uh, I'll let uh, John talk about it as well. But I think, uh, you know, one word, uh, heightened scrutiny. You know, uh, the regulations have been kind of a checkbox in the past and we are now in a world that's so fast evolving and the landscape is changing day in and day out. And, uh, you know, it, it's really important for these uh, enforcement actions for the scrutiny to be increased in a way that it becomes, you know, almost a mandatory requirement for people and organizations uh, to consider uh, or reconsider their situation uh, with the cybersecurity aspect. So I think, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's going to change the entire culture of how we look at compliance. Uh, you know, the tone from the top is very important from a leadership perspective. Uh, a lot of times we see, we see there being a struggle between what the IT wants, what the information security officer wants versus, uh, you know, what uh, the leadership wants. Um, right. And, and that has somehow uh, they have to come to the table and be able to uh, realistically look at the landscape and the risk uh, appetite that they have, uh, you know, because one of the things that uh, organizations tend to struggle with is the ROI, right? Um, you know, uh, tangible returns on investment. And unfortunately, uh, you know, it's an insurance policy. There may not necessarily be a tangible uh, return uh, that is quantifiable, uh, at least, uh, you know, unless there's a very deep work that's done in kind of understanding what the dollar value of a breach is. And a lot of companies are not mature enough to do that. Um, so they have to understand and weigh the risks versus, you know, uh, the advantages of having a good cybersecurity posture and being in compliance. Uh, and, and compliance, to be honest with you, and, and I'll stop with this, compliance is the difference between staying in business or being out of it. Jordan, do you have any final thoughts for us? You know, I would just, I would just say that on, on, the, on that point about, about COVID-19 and the current crisis, I think that as we've seen organizations sort of transform what business as usual looks like, um, you know, largely migrating to remote workforces, um, and, and, it, and it seeming to be the case that even once we're sort of out and beyond the core crisis, that that arrangement will continue um, at some companies, probably to an enormous extent, at other companies to a varying extent. Um, you know, the bottom line is, is that unfortunately it introduces yet another obligation to, um, uh, you know, to organizations to make sure that the ways in which they make remote connectivity available to their employees 
um, is still, uh, you know, sort of cybersecurity compliant, if you will, um, and so that they are not introducing, um, you know, uh, vulnerability by allowing employees to remotely connect and that they're actually um, understanding what their risk posture is as relates to, uh, you know, remote connections, just as they understand, um, you know, how those connections work within, for example, an office environment. And so, um, while many organizations have, have had longstanding um, ability for employees to connect remotely, obviously when you're doing it at scale, that introduces complications um, that need to be addressed from a security perspective. And when you incorporate that into your steady state operation, um, again, it also calls for taking a very close look at how you're managing the security of those connections. And, you know, just picking up off of something, you know, Sergeant mentioned, you know, we talk all the time with clients who come to us and, and have, for example, uh, internal IT. And those IT folks um, are also tasked with effectively looking after cybersecurity. And the fact of the matter is that those are very different jobs and functions. And there's even a tension um, between them in that IT folks are traditionally focused on network uptime, user access, convenience, and the sort of the smooth operation of, of an organization's, you know, network environment. Um, the cybersecurity folks, you know, they're focused on making sure that all those things are happening, but they're happening in, in a safe and secure manner as best as is possible. Um, and that may mean, for example, that when a vulnerability is detected, that, you know, network uptime can be impacted. Um, but that's what they need to do um, to protect the organization. And that is why the, the organizations that do this um, the best, if you will, um, you know, have not only those roles separated, but they also have them reporting, um, you know, directly up as opposed to, for example, a cybersecurity professional reporting into, let's say, a CIO. Um, you don't want to have that type of situation because it does not provide for the optimal protection of an organization. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really critical that, again, whether it involves making internal hires at the organizations that can afford to do so, or making sure that the right third-party experts are put in a position to maintain a level of vigilance over an organization. You just want to make sure that you're not just saying, for example, you know, oh, our IT team has that covered when it comes to cybersecurity. Because, again, you know, it's not a knock on them, but they have a very different job effectively. And to try and task them with both doing their job and at the same time protecting the organization from a security perspective, given what a different function that is, um, it's really not fair to them, and it's certainly not in the interests of the organization, uh, its people, and, and, and the folks who, uh, you know, who rely upon them. Jim, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I wanted to thank the both of you because the first American case obviously is significant because it's the first case, and also a broader overview of uh, the parts and components of a cybersecurity compliance program and where the regulators may take us hope that uh, perhaps in the future I might be able to uh, come back to you when we get the next enforcement action. We'll be here. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I'm running a couple of special series I'd like to visit with you about that I hope you'll listen to. The first one is a series on Wirecard and the accounting fraud fallout from that that pre- goes out every Wednesday that I'm doing with Mikhail Ryder-Gordon, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. The second is this month in September on the Compliance Live, I have Deanna Wongkwo, 
who is a former CCO, and she talks about her journey to the CCO chair and some of her experiences in joining it. Deanna has perhaps the most unique compliance background of anyone I know. She was in QAQC at NASA before she moved to the company where she became CCO. So it's a great story. I know you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, The Compliance Life has become an incredibly popular series, so check it out. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.